getting back to what I meant about different approach and recording, the reason it went quicker, I guess Fair Warning took longer than any album you've ever done, just because, uh, you know, I did more overdubs and, uh, I don't know, it just took more time. There were more things on tape that had to be mixed, you know? Yeah. I did so many different guitar parts and stuff that the mixing took longer and this and that. This album is that was actually cheaper to make than our first one. It cost us like forty forty six grand. Really? Yeah. Cause, and the reason why, getting back to it once again, is the different approach was instead of going into the studio. Oh wait, let me let me start at the beginning. What we always do is go down into the basement and uh, work up our, our new ideas and stuff. And then Ted comes down and listens and picks the ones that he likes and the ones he doesn't like. So we're we're already prepared before we go in the studio. You know, whereas a lot of bands will go straight to the studio and actually try and write at, a, at 150, 200 bucks an hour, you know, which is bullshit. So we all kind of agree on the songs that we want to do. And then uh, instead of going into the studio and doing... 10 basic tracks, we would do one basic track, come back the next day, or the same day later on in the evening after dinner, and do the backup harmonies and the lead vocal. And then that one was gone, you know? That's that, great. That one was in the bag. What was the kind of the order of songs? Which ones did you knock out first? Oh, uh, well, the very first one was Pretty Woman. Yeah. That was a relatively uh, straight cover. Weren't you tempted to cut loose? It's it's actually one of the I think that and Dancing Night Away are the only two songs ever recorded by us that has no guitar solo. Yeah, it almost makes me feel bad. It shows you how much uh, guitar solos mean to people because that's that's Pretty Woman is actually our only legitimate hit. It got to number eleven or ten or something like that in Billboard. I, I don't know. It, it was straightforward, but like the way. The way I played a song like that that has a riff, you know, is this a 12 string acoustic? This will sound like shit, but just like you really got me was straightforward, the same, you know, but it was like uh, updated. I mean, actually, people didn't even know that it was an old song until uh, critics started saying, oh, here's Van Hale doing cover tunes again. They're good fucking songs. Oh, yeah. Why should they not be. Redone, you know, like the way we do them for the new generation of people. I, I think it is different than the original, except you know that riff. You can't. That's the main reason I wanted to do it. That ding, 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 ding. You know, it smokes. I love it. It's a classic. Yeah. I know. There's a real sense of humor on the album. Hey, listen to all our albums. I think they all have it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast. With your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Try to sing Wondering if I try 
Round five, Hollywood, of the Van Halen Studio Record Reviews. This time we've got Diver Down in the queue to go through. And we, like the rest of the episodes, have bought a special guest with us to help us go through our thoughts, to help understand you, why you make decisions that you make on some of the music that you like and don't like on these records. I don't know what's going on with you. So for this episode, we bought along who? Who's our special guest, Hollywood? Well, Greg Renoff, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. So author Greg Renoff. Greg Renoff, you just got done writing and releasing Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, and also Van Halen Rising, which that came out in what, 2014, 2015? Yeah. Uh, I read that a few years ago as a fantastic book and just finished up the audio book of Ted Templeman. So what's happening with you, man? What's the latest and greatest with you? Latest and greatest is uh, just keeping on through this pandemic and uh, it's definitely uh, been an experience. I haven't been to a concert in uh, quite a long time. The last concert I was scheduled to go to was actually Kiss and David Lee Roth here in Tulsa. And if folks remember, that was the first show canceled on that tour. They had played the previous show and then they got to Tulsa and actually they left. I learned later the trucks arrived at nine o'clock in the morning and then they left like around 11 o'clock. They just left. So uh, just hanging in. Yeah, I don't think any of us saw this being as long as it was when it first started up. I know I certainly didn't. I thought, hey, okay, this is weird, but it's going to go on for a couple of weeks and then we'll be done with it uh, when it initially started. Of course, as it took shape and uh, went down the road, that uh, became increasingly obvious that it was going to be much longer. But here we are, 2021, and uh, maybe we'll get some concerts this summer. I don't know. For a, a writer, people might think, oh, you got all the time in the world to write now. Don't worry about going out for pizza. You don't got to worry about that. Just write now. I guess that doesn't really pan out as the way. Well, I mean, if you were a solo individual living in an apartment by yourself, yeah, that'd be great. But I have I have children. And so, yes, it's been a different journey over the last year. I'll just say that. Greg, are you getting calls every day, every week about, hey, we're close. We got something brewing. Keep your blah, blah week open. <laughs> like, is that coming or not yet? <laughs> you know, I occasionally get calls about different projects that maybe might happen in the future. But, you know, I think a lot of stuff has gotten put on pause for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, particularly, you know, any sort of thing with the live music and some stuff was, uh, you know, supposed to happen here in Tulsa last year and occasionally get some calls about some fun things that may happen, I hope. And uh, just as I said, I'm just really hoping for a uh, a good reset soon. I'm lucky I have teenagers, so everybody resides to their own room. Sure, sure. My children are younger, so it's just a different situation. Yep. Now, Greg, have you decided on your next project? You know, I really, really haven't. Like I said, you know, the last year, I mean, really the last year, there really hasn't been the ability for me to dive in and do another book just because my time was not free to do that type of thing, especially with, you know, if I were to take on another book project, like to travel. And again, there's, I'm not talking about anything in the works, but just I'm saying like in general, I spent time with Ted in California. I went to his house and we looked through his photographs and he showed me stuff out of his old Warner Brothers briefcase. And we sat and we talked for hours on end. I mean, you can do, you don't have to do that, but that's the type of stuff that going to re do research. And I went to New York and did research for the book at New York City Public Library. And those, again, all those things are sort of not as feasible now. So, so I, I have not taken on a new a new book project at this point, but you know, no doubt there's another book in me and or another two books in me and it'll, it'll come when, uh, when, uh, the, uh, the time's right. Let me ask this. When you sit down to do a book and you sit down with like Ted and mm -hmm. talk to him, do you just 
just start rolling tape and recording all the information and then you go somewhere and decipher everything and put it in order? Yeah, I mean, so how Ted and I did the did the book, you know, Ted initially it was a lot of emails back and forth and Ted was kind of doing a data dump and just dumping all this, you know, he would just sit down and write these incredibly long emails where he was just remembering all these stories and kind of saying, oh, I don't want to forget this. And he would write this stuff up. And then, then I sat with him and then would go through that along with the research that I'd done uh, on my own in prepping for the conversations, trying to dive deep into his discography, trying to ask him about things I may have come across, you know, just for example, something in Billboard magazine we hadn't talked about. I said, what about this? And showed it to him. And so it was that type of, of thing where it was basically a framework started a skeleton, started with Ted, you know, the emails back and forth with Ted, and then me doing what I could to flesh that out and then show him things and be like, Oh, this was in Cashbox. You remember this? And he'd be like, Oh my God, I do remember this. This is, you know, we this was a gold record. Nicolette Larson got a gold record at Warner Brothers. They had a picnic for her outside. And here's a picture of it. I'd forgotten about it. And he talked about that. So that was the type of thing. So, you know, it was based on my conversations with him. Obviously, it's in his voice and that's what it, it is. It's it's based on the conversations, but there was a lot of me trying to like anybody doesn't remember you don't remember you know if someone went through like if you were a, a, an athlete in high school or something and you could go through the high school newspapers and be like do you remember this game remember this game oh i'd forgotten all about this game we played you know against our crosstown rival i'd forgotten about that and this happened and then you sort of jog their memory and then they can talk about it so that was what i tried to bring to the table with working with ted was to have the historian's eye for a chronology to build the book but also to just to continually try to show and jog his memory on things to get him talking about topics he wouldn't necessarily remember. And, you know, and then it, then it sort of becomes a situation where you, you try to build a narrative where understanding you can't talk about everything, right? I mean, you just can't, you can't cover every single thing that the, the person did and everything's not as important as everything else. And then you sort of try to think about, okay, how do you build chapters? And some of that's obviously with a, with a individual like Ted, with his career, you're going to spend three or four chapters on the Doobie Brothers. You're going to spend three or four chapters on Van Halen. And then there's, you know, then they start to think about the other records and what was personally important to him and what really that maybe people didn't know about that he saw as a key experience for him. So Ted was fortunate enough to, Stephen, you just did the, did the audio book, you know, that Ted was fortunate enough to sit in the studio as a young musician and see Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Well, I think more like twice, at least twice. Mm-hmm. He was that he, he doesn't remember exactly how many times, but it was more than once. It was probably twice or even three times where he got to sit when Sinatra worked on an album. And Elvis. Right. That's light up. Yeah. Then he saw Elvis do some uh, vocals too for one of his movies. Basically, there was like, a, you know, El- it was had headphones on. and was singing along to this, uh, this, uh, this track of music to put, put together some uh, vocals for a movie. And so, yeah, I mean, that type, that type of thing where that wasn't on my radar. The Elvis one, I didn't know about it at all. Ted had mentioned that El- seeing Sinatra record a couple of times in interviews over the years in the past. So, you know, again, that was, that was a significant, seeing Elvis record was a significant me- moment in his life. And then a lot of the things that, as I said, that, I wouldn't have been able to decipher just from reading articles about Ted or interviews. It was things he just brought brought up. I said, oh, I forgot about this. You know, I went to Pete Townsend's house and Pete played me the Quadrophenia demos. We were going to sign sign the Who to Warner Brothers and you know the type of stuff that's kind of was kind of cool for kind of sketching the scene of what Ted's life was like and what his work was like as an executive. That yeah, that's not going to be you know it wasn't like he was like dropping that in interviews in nineteen you know <laughs> I just got back from Pete Townsend's house or something like that. It was something he had to kind of recall and tell me and then kind of you know try to build out from there. Greg, how did you handle? Data showing you one thing. Data is only as good as, you know, probably the human to put it there. Ted saying something else. Does that end up on the cutting room floor? Do you go Ted's way because he's probably more in tune to it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, you know, that happened occasionally. I mean, you know, like years and dates. And, you know, obviously when you have done as many albums as Ted has done, and I've tried to explain this to people before, you know, because I had to learn it myself, which is like, you know, as a fan, 
you know, like the Doobie Brothers, you know the records, you know the Van Halen records, you know, the, you know, you know the songs. And you know, occasionally he, I, I mentioned a song, he but which one was that on again? You know, it wasn't something that he he isn't thinking about, like what was on the second side of Women and Children first, like every day of his life. You know, and it's like he wasn't, you know, and he, you know, if he plays, he's like, oh yeah, okay, I remember. He remembers the songs, but it wasn't as if he's kind of like, you know, he doesn't know his discography. It's not that of an egomaniac where he like knows his discography front and back. And so, you know, you'd have to sort of be like, oh, here, look, and he'd be like, oh yeah, right, okay, now, sorry, I had the, you know, there were things like that. So you just. <laughs> He yeah. just, you know, you just sort of present it. And it, you know, that happened occasionally. And like anybody, if someone said to me, like, what year, what year did this happen in high school? I might say, oh, that was definitely sophomore year. But someone might say, look, the yearbook. I was like, oh, oh, it was junior year. I was wrong about that. So that was that type of yeah. thing. So, but yeah. Steven I mean, just says he didn't go to high school. So, <laughs> right, right. So, Sonny and I have this argument all the time because I constantly bring up concerts and tours that I saw. And Sonny says, well, <laughs> in this book, it says it happened this year, not that year. <laughs> uh, I was like, well, I distinctly remember yeah. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and there was a lot of, you know, obviously in the book, Ted might tell me I saw a certain jazz performer in Santa Cruz. And then I was able to go back and basically find the date, right? Mm-hmm. Where Ted is remember, like in the book, it says, I saw this person, you know, on this date. And that was just put in to help people understand like the, so it's not like when I was, you know, when I was about 12 and people were like, what, what is that? What year is that? So yeah, I mean, that was the type of thing that I would be able to go, this is the show. And he'd be like, oh yeah, this is the one. We talk about the op- whatever the opening band or whatever else it was. You know, he had very vivid memories of these shows, but obviously it's like anything else. Like what year did I see Crocus? I think it was 1997, you know, but you know, it's like, of course, I saw Crocus and Ted saw like, you know, Louis Armstrong. That's that's why that's why Ted became a famous producer. And I, you know, I just became the guy who writes about the famous producers because I didn't have as good taste as him. But yeah, I mean, that's that's so bad. That was the type of stuff, too, that I, I tried to, you know, again, to try to, to flesh out the book and give it that the chronological and narrative rigor that allows people to follow the story rather than just going, you know, we're going off somebody's memory. You just wouldn't you wouldn't be able to have that ability to engage the reader in the same way. If you just said, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was younger, I did this and did that. You try. Now, that wasn't always possible for everything, but when it was, I w- I really tried to bring that into the the book so people can understand that. As, you know, even as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, Ted was really into this um, pretty sophisticated jazz music, which, which served him well later in his career when he uh, became a musician. I'm totally jealous of the folks that met Hendrix, Sinatra, oh, yeah. Presley, because yeah. I'm stuck at Pretty Boy Floyd, <laughs> Crocus, <laughs> South Gang, uh, Warrant, uh, hey. Faith Warning. Hey. It's, all, it's all good, man. That's all good. Yeah, it's all it's all a taste and opinion, right? Who's to say? I mean, who's to say who's better, right? That's <laughs> Just tell me in a late night conversation with Ted Templeman in his house over a glass of brandy, you said, hey, Ted, do you remember that band Crocus? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was funny. He, uh, we didn't mention in passing. It didn't end up on the in the book because he didn't produce them. But he was supposed to um, Paul Shertino's band, Rough Cut. I think Rough I think Cut. Ted was in line to produce Rough Cut, and then you know, and then Ted got offered Aerosmith, and it's one of those things that they kind of they just kept getting pushed mm-hmm. along the lines, like, oh, sorry, this is a bigger ba- bigger act, and, there's, and someone else did their uh, their band. But um, yeah, Ted I mean, that bullet. <laughs> well, I mean, he did do Bullet Boys, right? And so you know, he was he was open minded about like doing that. younger younger yeah. bands. Yeah, and. Uh, was you know he actually really enjoyed working with bullet boys but yeah it was one of those things i think that those guys he saw he basically i think in effect signed rough cut and it wasn't quite in the same situation where i don't think he scouted them in the same way he's got a van halen but basically they, you know they rough cut was brought to him as you know how to do this type of music you've had van halen this is your sort of your forte ted in some ways and so he was he, yeah he remembered that that was just something he just you know he just he said it happened sometimes like you know, he was an executive and uh somebody who didn't just have records to make he would go to these meetings and fly to 
fly to New York to go to these conferences and things like that. He was, he was an executive vice president at Warner Brothers. So there was a lot of responsibility on his shoulders as a company executive beyond just sort of a, a executive producer who would go make records. So mm-hmm. sometimes things got just his schedule got too full. Yeah, there were a lot of aha moments for me personally with this Ted Templeman book. Anybody that thinks that this book is just all about Ted and Van Halen, you know, I encourage you to go check it out because it's much more in depth. And Ted shares all these stories about, you know, his personal methods of madness in the studio as a producer. But some of the aha moments for me, I think, was one, I had no idea with, I guess it was 1984 that that whole thing with Don Landy went on where they were holding the masters uh, and <laughs> and keeping them from them and all this yep. stuff. Like that was a crazy yep. moment. How Ted broke down how he got paid as far as the points and how he gave one of his points to Don Landy at one yep. point and things like that. Yep. Still, Don, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like, I haven't confirmed with this with Don lately, yet lately, but my understanding is, yeah, that Ted... So Ted would get, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, Ted would get, got four points on the records, yeah. which meant like 4% of mm-hmm. the, whatever the gross sales, right? I don't know, net sales, whatever it is. And then, um, yeah, each Ted just actually just told me recently, it was just only fair. He said, I just, you know, I said, most people wouldn't do that. I and mean, most producers wouldn't do that, but he said, it just was only fair. I mean, it was just, he deserved it. Yeah. You know, he, he more than deserved it. He made those records sound so great. And Ted, Ted always said that part of one of the things that's interesting about the Don Landy and Ted relationship. And there's, you know, there's been other examples, I think of, of producers and engineers where they have that very, very close partnership where they work together on so many records there's been some but where ted could leave mm-hmm. and just know everything's gonna be fine he'd be like i'm going home right i'm going home for dinner do whatever you want and i'll listen to it in the morning like he was never even a question so yeah that was um yeah i mean i thought that really speaks to ted's integrity as a person too and you know a lot of greedy people in the industry and uh you know ted knew that that was a very valuable and that's a very valuable thing to give to somebody and he felt strongly that don was his friend and don is his friend and he that he deserved it and earned, the, and earned the money because yeah an engineer would just get paid you just get paid your your working rate whatever it is like you work on the records and you work however many hours or whatever the you know again i'm not sure how that all worked but it was basically like an hourly or basically contract rate and you got paid and then you, you moved on and there was no royalties that came from it but as a producer obviously you have a an investment in the sales of the record and so yeah ted quietly gave don one of the points of his four points on those van halen records yep that's at least two certified diamond records right there. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've tried to, you know, I always had a ballpark and I'm probably, I'm probably wrong. I should know better, but it's, you know, it's like, yeah, like probably like, you know, 26 million between Van Halen one and 1984 alone. And then going through the other four records is probably another 20 million, probably I'm guessing like, you know, five to seven, you know, who knows what the numbers anymore, but, and they were selling big back then too. That wasn't even like, you know, mm-hmm. they were, it was a valuable thing back then, but yeah, it's uh it speaks to uh, the friendship, which is, you know, there's been some ups and downs as the book shows, but, you know, sustained all these years. And they met and like Don and Ted met. And I think 1968 is when they met um, when Don engineered a record that Ted was uh, working on as an artist, as a member of Harper's Bazaar. So they, you know, they go way back. Yeah. And this business, you get a relationship that lasts that long. It's rare. Like even when you hear the whole Ezrin Cooper thing, like you hear so many horror stories about the business that when you hear these long lasting relationships, they must have had something special. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Ted always explained it as a pilot co-pilot situation where he would say, literally, we would sit next to each other in these small rooms. But, you know, he's like, it was just like you sit there and they mix together, take turns mixing the records and they mix together some, sometimes before automation. I mean, at some point in the 80s, there was basically the ability to program a board and you could it would automatically do the mix of the, the faders would move up and down automatically however you wanted it. You programmed it. But before that, it was manual. So if you wanted to do a a fade or do something, make a, uh, an effect. Sometimes you needed four hands and you had, you know, they would do these things together. And so, yeah, they would, you know, they spent 
honestly, Ted at that time probably would tell you he probably spent more time with Don than he did his own wife because he was, you know, they're in these studios for hours and hours and hours and hours together, you know, working on these records and the pre-production and then the mixing and then the mastering and the whole situation. So um, I really enjoyed hearing those stories and, uh, you know, gave me a, a something of an understanding how records were made, not from a technical standpoint necessarily, like, you know, how you, how you mix a record, but just sort of the the amount of, of work it took and just how important it was to have somebody you could psychologically get on the same page with and how important that was that Ted would say like Don literally knew what I was thinking. Like I could look at him and he, like he would, we would hear some music from an artist and I didn't have to say anything cause I didn't want to alert the artist. I didn't like that, but he'd I'd look at him and he'd look at me and he knew like, Oh, that's bad. Or this isn't working or something. And just like, and I didn't have to say anything. And then we could just, which is important because you have somebody out there in the room, they're trying to sing and they're getting nervous and they're screwing up or whatever they're doing. And you're trying to get them in the right headspace. He just said it was, you know, that type of relationship where it was familiar and they were, had worked together on so many records rather than having sort of a, you know, assortment of people come in who you don't know to have to work together as a producer. So it was, it was an important, important relationship. Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. If you want to know all about the producer that produced the Van Halen records, the Doobie Brother records, that's a great book to go check out. And then if you want to know the, I would call it the origin stories of Van Halen, go check out Van Halen Rising because that was a very entertaining book to me and learned a lot uh, personally about the origins of Van Halen. So both books by Greg Renoff, and we'll put all those links in the show notes as to where you can get those books, but well worth the read or the listen uh, as it is uh, these days. So we should get on to Diver Down. But before we do, Greg, where did Van Halen get introduced to you? Van Halen didn't register with me as a band probably until 1984. I, I heard I heard Pretty Woman on the radio in 82. You know, I was whatever. I was a fan of rock music and I was played on the radio. I don't remember the video because it got banned on MTV, which is kind of funny. But uh, Jump was the first thing that really hit me. And I knew like, oh, this is Van Halen. So then I saw the 1984 tour. I was lucky enough to go see them on that tour. And the uh, fandom, yes, really, really started started then for me. That would, that would have been uh, just about a year. And then, then Van Halen breaks up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in your Ted Templeman book, at the end of the book, it says, the summer of 84 was it for you. You went backwards from there and became a huge fan, and they became your favorite band. Mm-hmm. Did you see them after, Roth? Mm-hmm. Did you see them with, with Hager? Yeah, I saw them uh, twice on 5150, and then I saw them on Monsters of Rock. I uh, unfortunately missed them on OU one too, which is a a sad story that's not worth telling, but it was a sad story. And then I saw them on um, balance. You know, I, I was going to college and grad school. And so my funds were kind of, unfortunately, were kind of limited. I was on student living on student loans at the time, but I did see them on the balance tour. I missed them on the, you know, the foreign lawful car knowledge tour, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was a, you know, a lifetime thing for me. I saw them in the reunion tours and stuff with Roth and good times. And yeah, I actually, of course, saw them more with, with Sammy than with Dave, actually. Uh, I think I still think that's still true. I think I saw them more times with Sammy than with Dave. Yeah. So when I decided to do these 12 records over the course of this year, you were one of the first people I thought of. I said, you know what? Greg's not been on our show. I want to get Greg on the show because I knew you were a Van Halen fan. I knew you'd done the Van Halen rise and I hadn't read the Mm -hmm. Ted Templeman book at the time. So I wanted to get you on. So basically I emailed you. And at the time I emailed you, I said, what album do you want to do? So you literally could have done just about any album and you would expect somebody to pick Van Halen one or mm-hmm. fair warning is a extremely popular mm-hmm. record for people to pick, but you said diver down. Mm-hmm. So why just in a nutshell? 
Well, that's going to be a long nutshell. I think the thing I would say is that I think that Diver Down gets a lot of criticism from a lot of fans. And I, and I think I understand why. Yeah. But I think if you take Diver Down for what it is rather than just sort of what it, you know, it should be mm-hmm. or what members of the band have said about it in later years, mm-hmm. to me, it represents everything I love about Van Halen. Now, again, it doesn't mean there's not Fair Warning doesn't in 1984 doesn't. Sure. But when I look at the songs that they chose, lots of covers, which I feel really speaks to their origins as a cover band. I know that caused some friction later on with Ed, mm-hmm. who um, you know felt there were too many covers, and Alex felt the same way there were too many covers. But that is exactly what I liked about it, is I liked the covers. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't want wouldn't have wanted more original songs from Van Halen at some point. You know, a double album of with the second you know side of all of all originals, great. But the fact that the band could do something like Big Bad Bill and make it sound completely natural is also something that puts them in a category, I think, of very few, you know, artists. And that to me was the, the kind of the greatness of Van Halen. That you go through this this record and hear cover by the Kinks, you hear Roy Orbison cover. And that all made sense to me when I listened to it, it makes sense. And it sounds like Van Halen. That is what I love about the record. All right. So it's time to get into Diver Down. Let's start with some basic facts of the album. Album was released on April 14th, 1982. Recorded January through March of 1982. So basically, this is gearing up to be a summer record. It was recorded at not only Sunset Sound as the other ones, but also at Warner Brothers Recording Studios, which was formerly Amigo Studios. Length of the record is 3104. Label is Warner Brothers Records. Producer is obviously Ted Templeman. And the album to date is somewhere around the four time platinum mark so the album cover the album cover artwork displays the diver down flag which indicates a scuba diver is down in the water asked about the cover in a 1982 interview david lee roth said it was meant to imply that there was something going on that's not immediately apparent to your eyes (laughs) what is going on underneath the surface well i think there was a whole lot going on underneath the surface (laughs) yeah exactly there was a whole lot going on while impressed by Ross' creative marketing spin, manager Noel Monk also explained in his book that there's a sexual double entendre, dive her down, in his book. So the back cover of the album also features a photo, and I love this back photo of the band standing on stage, and this was taken at the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando, Florida, after they had concluded it was a two-night set. They had concluded the second night opening for the Rolling Stones. Uh, and that's just a cool photo on the back of that album as well. Thoughts on this uh, album cover, Greg? Well, my thoughts would be that Ted recently told me that Alex was the one who came up with the idea of using the diver down flag. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm sure. Alex was the one. I remember he, he was the one. He said he came up with the, you know, the fair warning design, which I think people knew mm-hmm. that Alex had kind of come up with the base of the concept for fair warning. But Alex was the one who presented the idea of we should use the international symbol for a diver under the surface for the record, you know, which was, was cool to learn. I didn't know that. And, you know, it's not like Alex, let's face it. Let's not like Alex has a lot of interviews. It's like, you know, so we don't really uh, get to hear a lot about Alex's role inside the band. You know, I love the, I, I think it's, it was a great choice because it's obviously so arresting and, and immediately, you know, kind of sticks out among like all these like black and white photos and everything. It was really, it was a great, if you're flipping through albums, the red and the white really did catch your eye. Mm-hmm. And then the back cover, as you mentioned, with the photograph from the Tangerine Bowl of their live performance, their opening for the Stones. I mean, that's just a great 
image to have is the back of your album to say, you know, kind of the end of a show, a celebration of, of Van Halen live. So yeah, I love the cover and love the, love the flip side of it. And, and the collage on the inside is really, really cool too. For the, you can't really, unfortunately that's the, you know, the issue with CDs is like, it's so small, you can't really even see it, but on a vinyl, you pull it out. There's this whole collage of, of cool pictures of those guys joking around and stuff and playing on stage and, you know, backstage goofing around. So it's cool. Yeah. Sonny, your thoughts? Uh, the diver down flag. I mean, that's why Coke uses these colors, right? They pop, right? Like Coca Cola loves these definitely. colors, right? But this back picture at the Tangerine Bowl, dude, this is that it feels like there's two hundred thousand people there, mm-hmm. right? Right? I'm I'm sure it's probably twenty to thirty thousand, but good lord, this thing looks huge. Yeah. And what else does that do? That also gives you the image because I certainly didn't know when I was 15 and 16 that I bought that album that that wasn't technically their crowd, right? Right. That's a Stones crowd. So it gives you the image or the thought that this band is huge. And yeah, they were big in Diver Down, but I don't know if they were that big. That's a stadium full of people. <laughs> no, they were, no, they weren't. No, they weren't filling football stadiums in 1981. But no, I mean, yeah, they're obviously a huge band. But yeah, that's it was. It was a great choice. Uh, I think Niels Lozauer took the picture, and yeah, very cool. So let's get into some sort of specifics about this record. I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point that the record came about sort of they were forced into it. So the original idea was that they came off the road after fair warning. They were tired. They were beat. They had gone four albums and four tours and killed themselves. And they wanted time off. They demanded time off. So Roth said, okay, great. Here's an idea. Let's release a single just to keep us out there. So they put together pretty woman and they wanted this whole big video production. They were going to do this video, do this single and that was going to keep them on the minds of the public while they relaxed and took their time with the next record. Well, lo and behold, they have a hit with Pretty Woman. It hits the charts. Warner Brothers says, great. What goes with a hit song? A record. Now get in the studio, make us a record, mm-hmm. right? If I was Noel Monk or if I was the band, Hindsight 2020, I might have said, listen, no, we've made you enough money right now. We're going to take a break. We're going to do this record next And no, we're not going to go in the studio and make this record. Yeah. I don't know if they were able to do that or not, you know? So from what Ted told me, when the single came out and hit the starting point of all that, Ted would take it back to the beginning was that Ted was not in favor of doing Pretty Woman at all. That, you know, he didn't even like the song, but they, but the band really wanted to do the video. So from what Ted recalled, it was we want to make this cool video for this new channel called MTV. We have this idea. We want to make basically like a mini movie. You know, I, again, I'm exaggerating, but like this basically I have this thing where there's actually, there's no miming, right? There's no singing along. It's just basically this, this, it's a, it's like a spaghetti Western where it's all like these shots and you like look at the faces and you can tell what's going on from the faces and the scenes. And so when they decide to do the video, that's when they, they settled on the song. There was some disagreement about dancing in the streets, I think, versus, if I remember correctly, the story, dancing in the streets versus pretty woman, which when I talked to Ted about that, Ted said he didn't even know about that or didn't remember that. He said it was basically, it was just, they said, we're going to do pretty woman. And Ted was like, okay. And he was like, I could have, t- I, if they wanted to do a cover, so Ted told me, I think he put it in the book, I could have picked 10 other songs, like 50s or 60 songs that I would have preferred, which I thought would have been better. But he, you know, he said it came out, came out good. He likes it. But as a producer, he said, I would not have chosen that song or would have been like, yeah, if we're putting out one song, not just like an album track, one song, that this is the song I would have endorsed. But that's what they said. They'd already had the idea for the video and then it went forward. And so as it's discussed in the Templeman book, you know, when the song hit, and again, I don't really know the whole stipulations of the contract, but I presume that the record company has the leverage and 
you know, you can say F off to Warner Brothers and there's consequences that probably would flow from that. I, I don't know what they would have been. You know, that would have been between the band's lawyers and the label's lawyers or whatever, however that would have come down. But I didn't think it came to that. It was basically the message came down from president of Warner Brothers, not Ted, from the president above, you know, Mo Austin and uh, Lenny Warrenker and the other people above Ted saying, that's great. You gave us a single. Guess what? We don't make any money on a single. You're hot. Give us an album. So I think the important thing for people to understand is that as Ted said, singles are only put out to sell albums and to sell a tour. The money comes to a band and the money comes to the label through albums and tours, right? The bands make the money off the touring and you make money off records as well. And the label makes money off a tour that promotes a record. And so you can't tour behind a single. You can't go, let's go on the road behind a single. And then of course it dies, right? It's a single. I mean, I guess, you know, I guess if it's like Heartbreak Hotel or something and it's like number one for like two months or something that maybe it would be a different deal. But like a typical single, it goes up to the top 20 and then it falls back down and it's gone in, in six or seven weeks and everyone forgets again. And so Ted, as Ted discusses in the book, was actually unhappy with this state of affairs because Ted said, typically we would have went down to Dave's basement and I would have listened to all their material again. I would have listened to the old demo. I would have heard their new songs. I would have listened to Eddie's riffs. I would have sat with Dave. We would have worked and done all this pre-production to get ready. He said, one of the reasons why we can make the record so we could make the record so fast is that we spent hours and hours and hours in Dave's basement. He goes, he always said more hours than those guys ever remember. Probably all night we would stay down there and I'd listen and we'd talk and we would cross songs off and we'd change things and we'd move parts around. And so all that went out the window. It was like, we need a record like right now. Like, what do you guys have right now? Like we have to go in the studio in two weeks. He said it was crazy. Hence, that's why you have a lot of cover songs. And that's sort of what ended up happening with some of the other, which we can get into track by track, some of the other material where it was kind of didn't get finished the way that maybe some people had would have wanted it to get finished. But I think it's important, you know, regardless of what Noel says in the book or whatever else has been said about it, is to understand that as a producer, you know, Ted was actually upset too. Like basically, I'm, I'm not saying he was going to the, you know, he's not going to the president of Warner Brothers and pitching about it. Basically, he was like, well, this sucks. I wish you guys hadn't put out the basically wish you guys hadn't put out the single. It changed the timeline. And again, I don't know when they were going to go back in the studio, whether it was supposed to be in the summer, whatever it was. Let's say they were going to go back in the summer in August of 82 to do a record or May. I don't know when, but the timeline changed because Warner Brothers says, you guys are climbing the charts. You are hot. We cannot have you fall and disappear again because it's an opportunity missed. It was a successful single. And let's face it, much more successful than the singles that had preceded it on Women and Children First and Fair Warning. Now, Dance the Night Away was a radio, AM radio hit. That was a big radio hit for Van Halen. And Pretty Woman was getting played on AM radio. It was like basically, like a, you know, it was like a top 40, like, you know, the top 40 at, four, you know, today, you know, WNBC top 40. And they, it was being played like that. Yeah, Pretty Woman pretty much carried this record to 4 million sales on its own. So the end result is Diver Down, and it gives us four original songs and five cover songs, and then some instrumentals in between. So let's get into this record. It costs 46 grand to make. Sonny, take it away. Let's go track by track on this thing. All right. So the first track we got is Where Have All the Good Times Gone? Once we had an easy ride and always felt the same. Time was on our side and we had everything to gain. Let it be like yesterday. Is that me or happy days? Mom, I look back on all the things they used to do. Never had no money, and they always told the truth. Daddy didn't need no little 
I'll tell you, I had no idea this was a cover, right? I got into Van Halen and Hagar, really. So by the time I get this album, I've heard this song many times. But as a casual fan, I have no clue this is a cover. Before I get your thoughts, Greg, on this song, it's very interesting because it works in two different ways. You're releasing some covers in 82 Mm -hmm. that are popular songs in the olden days. So you're Mm -hmm. connecting with the 40-something-year-olds. With the teenagers, they don't know the difference. Right. They don't have anything to compare right. it to, right. and they're great songs, right? So you right. win both ways, I guess. And I guess that's why I like this song so much. What about you, Greg? Yeah, I always thought that was one that really just leaped out of the speakers to me. The Eddie Solo was so great. The the symbol, you know, the decision to basically to fade in, Ted's decision to kind of fade the record in with, with uh, Alex writing the symbols like that, I always thought was such a great way to start the record. Yeah, and again, I, as a kid, I was a liner note reader, so I probably, I, you know, eventually saw it was a Dave, Ray Davies song, Kink song. But, right, I mean, it had no connection at all to anything i heard before i mean that, that's the thing that i always think is interesting as a teenager you don't know anything really about music as a, basically the history of music whatever you make your parents may have played for you or whatever but in terms of a depth of that stuff and so my knowledge of the kinks at the time was probably like lola or something like that right or whatever i'd heard on the radio it also is a, a song that I, if i remember correctly mike anthony said was one that they had played in the clubs but it was actually they were they had done the david bowie david bowie had a version on one of his like an album he put out of covers in the mid 70s and it was actually they they learned the david bowie version which i thought was cool too because roth was and i didn't know this till years later but the roth was a big david bowie fan as a fan i think it's great i mean i think it's like it's great steven your thoughts cuz they're slowly kind of bringing back the party vibe after the last darker album right definitely. right out of the gate definitely yeah, so this song, I'm the same way, Sonny. I didn't know it was a cover song when I got it. I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. I loved it out of the gate. It just feels like summer to me a little bit. And I know I've used that theme before on other Van Halen songs, but I dig the riff. I dig the groove. Today, I went back for the first time and listened to the original Kinks version, which I'd never Ugh. I'd never heard before. Why did you waste your time? Good Lord, it's terrible. Because I had to compare it, and so I wanted to hear that. And then I came across a bootleg tape of Van Halen playing a high school gym in 1975, playing Where Have All the Good Times Gone? And they're playing sort of, to me, it sounds like the Kinks version of it. I never heard the Bowie version, so I can't can't say, but they're playing basically what I thought was the Kinks version of it. I mean, it was okay. So much better on Diver Down. <laughs> I love this song on Diver Down, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of the original version. <laughs> okay, so the next track, Hang 'em High, Deep Cut. Really, everybody forgets great guitar riff, right, Greg? Yeah, and I think this is another song that if I was gonna introduce someone to Van Halen and really say like they were, you know, they're a heavy band. You play this song for them. You say this, they were, you know, obviously a lot of debate about whether Van Halen was a heavy metal band. And that's why I wrote this whole book about kind of how Van Halen was defined at the time in 78 as a heavy metal band. But yeah, I mean, I think generically people would understand Van Halen as a hard rock band, but this is about as heavy as Van Halen gets. And the solos are so great. I thought the imagery that Roth came up with is the sort of the cowboy Western imagery was so great. And uh, thinking about that as well, I would really emphasize the fact that you have these great original songs. And I understand that Ed Van Halen had more original songs that he wished he would have had time to finish or finish properly to get on the record. And I understand that. I mean, I, that makes sense to me, but you know, the ones that did make the record, like this one is so good. I mean, it's so it's Again, it's just an album track, but to me, this is the other, the genius of Van Halen. This is just a great killer drum beat by Alex and stuff. And the whole way they ended it with that, you know, the, the kind of emphasizing the, the drum pattern by Alex, just an awesome Van Halen song.
Stephen Greg said it, but uh, man, Alex and Michael really Kick shine ass. on this track, huh? Kick ass. Yeah, really good. I mean, this is the first original from the record, and it goes back to an old tune called Last Night that was recorded for the 77 Warner Brother demos. I might try to slip that song in uh, at the end of the, this episode. The melody is much better on this reworked version as it became Hang 'em High. I like the background vocals. I love this song. Definitely a keeper for me. So next track, Cathedral. Okay, look, I'm a sucker for the volume swells, but come on, <laughs> dude. That's a little bit overdoing it. I get the church organ thing. I just, Greg, I'm not a big fan of instrumentals, but I, I get it. It's just a lot of volume swells. Well, I mean, there's a lot of instrumental work on Diver Down. And again, that's, I, I get that. I mean, I think the perspective, Sonny, of, of somebody saying, yeah, I want more. So, I mean, I want more like Van Halen songs rather than just sort of an Eddie Van Halen showcase. But for me, it also, I think, speaks to Ted's ability to kind of think about how to, how to sequence these records where you sort of follow the real like intense two songs with that sort of quieter thing. And then you move into even, you know, another quiet songs we'll get to in a minute with the next track that follows. But it was always a staple of the Van Halen concert over the last previous year too. I wouldn't know that at the time, but for bootlegs, if you listen that he was doing that on stage. And so again, you can kind of, you know, what you got, Ed, Ed, what do you got? And you're like, oh, I have this thing I do on stage and let's hear it. And then you sort of make it into a, an instrumental. But to me, I love, I love Cathedral. I mean, I'm, again, I'm a huge fan of this record. Yeah. I'm not sure this is an issue anymore, but I guess when he did it, he was turning it up, turning it down too fast. And I guess the volume knob heats up and then freezes. So it took him two takes to do it because he froze the volume knob. I don't think that's happening much. Any after all the eighties guitarists made this thing such a, uh, such a hit. Uh, maybe that's not an issue anymore, but, uh, Steven, what do you think about this song? I actually like cathedral. I think it's a nice piece. It's not one of the instrumentals that bothers me. I can appreciate it for what it is. So yeah, I'm cool with it. So then we come to secrets and I, I'll go down this wormhole and start watching like David Lee Roth interviews and the guy's a nut, right? So somebody asked him about secrets and he's talking about may your moccasins leave happy tracks in the summer snows. Really dude, just speak in English. Like, I don't even know what that means. It feels kind of like a hangover type song, right? The party's over and now I got a hangover and here comes secrets. What do you think, Greg? Uh, the thing you learn as you age and Santa Claus disappears out of your life and these other things, you started learning that Dave didn't always tell the truth in interviews. I mean, he claimed <laughs> that he claimed, again, I have no way of knowing, and probably only Dave and maybe the guys in the band know whether this is true or not, is that he talked about how he was, you know, on tour, on the fair warning tour, and they were in New Mexico or Arizona, and he went to like a, a gift shop and there were all these Native American themed basically uh, birthday cards, or whatever. And he bought a whole bunch of these cards because he liked the poetry and he kind of called it out of that. You know, I love the uh, the solo in the middle, I think is so emotional and kind of gets to that sort of Clapton-esque part of Ed's playing, which isn't all like crazy tapping and all this crazy whammy bar stuff, but real mellow and melodic. And then the, the 12-string guitar that he played on it as well. I'm, I'm you know, really enjoyed that and watching the, the bootlegs we can all see on YouTube with uh, him bringing out the Kramer, the double neck where he would play the 12-string. So it's a song that I, I like in part because it lets me see a different side of Ed's guitar playing. Obviously, it's not a big riff-based song. It's just it's a totally different type of song than you would typically expect from a Van Halen rock song. Tracks in the 
Steven, I know I take a lot of shots at David sometimes for vocals. He sells this song well, man. This is a pop song, right? Yeah, so this song is probably, if you know, going back to the uh, first four records, we kind of talked about how each record had a Van Halen attempt at a ballad. So I think that this is their a closest attempt to a ballad on Diver Down for the most part. And it's a song that, out of the gate, I didn't appreciate, but over the years, I've come to appreciate greatly because I really, really enjoy this song now. I think the melody is really good. Greg already talked about it. I absolutely love Edward's solo in this song. And then the other thing that kind of occurred to me uh, while I was reviewing this record earlier today is this is kind of the first time that Dave actually does a lot of singing in falsetto. Mm-hmm. There's a whole couple lines in this song where he's singing in falsetto, which is yeah. is a little bit of a stretch for DLR. And that's a great point. I mean, Dave's voice is really in great. It's got a great, I don't know, a little bit of a rough edge to it. It's really in great shape. It's sort of like prime 80s rough. You know, obviously it has changed over the years, but to me, that's, you're exactly right, Stephen, that it has this, this great range to it, you know, sort of from the real rough whiskey soaked stuff that you get on some of the other songs in this, which is much more very smooth and very pop. Really cool. So the next track, Intruder, I was listening to it again today, and uh, I think I figured out what it is, okay? <laughs> I think it's Eddie trying to talk to us with his guitar. He's using, like, Morse code, mm-hmm. and he's saying, David Lee Roth is driving me nuts. Please help me. <laughs> I, think th- I think that's what it is. <laughs> Somebody needs to transcribe it for me, though. Greg, you think that could be it? I, you know, I think the most interesting thing I can tell you about Intruder, and honestly, that's probably my least favorite song on the record. But what I was happy to hear confirmed by Wolfgang was that Dave actually played keyboards on that song, that it's actually a live take, that it was Ed on guitar, Al on drums, Dave on keyboards, playing that sort of the, the spaghetti Western, da, 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 and Mike on bass. They tracked it in a room at you know, Sunset, I think, it, or maybe Amigo, I'm not sure where they tracked that one. But David talked about that, and then I was told by somebody else that, you know, I think it is Dave, I think it's live keyboard, I think it's a live, you know, live track's on overdub. And then, you know, there was something back and forth on Twitter about it, and Wolfgang basically 
hopped in. He's very attentive to Twitter, like what gets said on Twitter. And so he like, he's like, yeah, that's actually true. And I wasn't like for to me to be right, but basically to have him be like, yeah, basically my dad told me that. And that's actually true. was really kind of cool to be like, oh, it's actually not BS. It's actually true. So that to me is kind of the, the kind of, for me, the same grace of in some ways, again, I don't, I don't love it. And again, that's the thing is like when Ted told me about intruder and all this stuff, he was like, we had to do this. They had to, we had to make the song a certain length because they'd already mapped out the video. Right. They knew the video had to be, again, I'm making this up like five minutes long and pretty woman was only three and a half minutes long. I know these aren't the right song, song times. And then, so they needed a minute and 30 seconds. And that's why intruder was made. And he's like, it seemed backwards to me. And he talked about that in the book. He said to me, that seemed totally backwards to me. You make a great song and then you do a cool video. You don't make a video idea. And then, but it was, you know, it was like almost like a sound. They were making a soundtrack for a video. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I understand the thinking to make it like a spaghetti Western because that was the way the kind of the video was meant to basically lampoon that type of thing. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of, of the song, but it's, you know, it's one of these things that's not super long either. So you can sort of like live with it. You know, if it had been like 10 minutes of Intruder, I, I might have had a, might have a different opinion about Diver Down. But, you know, it, and it, of course, it, it's one of those things that you can't help but expect a pretty woman to follow. Like, you know, the worst thing ever on the radio would ever be done be something like you play that and then they don't play Pretty Woman. You're just like, you know, you're like your whole day is thrown off. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Steven, uh, I don't know if you realize this comes up later, right? It has a Yankee Rose vibe because that yes. sound comes back. Yeah. I mean, I, I had uh, recently listened to a interview with Edward and he was doing a lot of in- experimentation with sounds and using beer cans and all kinds of crazy stuff uh, as Ed likes to tinker. And that was the beginnings of intruder and then like greg said it was basically put together as part of this video david lee roth insisted that he had to have this beginning part musically to pretty woman and so that's exactly what was uh what it was written for and what it was doing yeah so the next track oh pretty woman you know we were kind of talking earlier greg you were mentioning about you know 1982 and it had to come out Mm -hmm. you know if we rewrite history here they go dormant 82 and they come out with an album 83, they have to compete against Pyromania, Synchronicity, and Thriller. I, yeah, well, that would have sucked for them. <laughs> right. So maybe in the end, it worked out like it was supposed to. Who knows? But those three records are untouchable, really. Yeah. I, and to have to compete with it would have been ridiculous. You know, it ended up being a very uh, successful tour for Van Halen. I mean, they really did. They did do well on the road. The album... I always try to emphasize this to people too. I mean, as much as we all love fair warning and I love women and children first, the album chart wise diver down did better. I'm not saying it's a better, again, kind of objectively speaking, you know, I'm not saying like that the whole fair warning thing is like artistically worse to diver down. I'm just saying that in terms of how the market responded to it because of pretty woman, uh, because it's some, you know, another song we'll talk about in a minute, the album did better. It, it sold more copies. In fact, that was one of the things that Ted, you know, kind of emphasized as well to me in our conversations. He didn't like, you know, blow it out of proportion, but he said, you know, it was an issue. Their, their sales were, weren't going to, they weren't going to drop Van Halen, but it's like, you know, obviously as their producer, when you see the debut in Van Halen too, and then women and children, every album is selling less. That's not a good trend. That's not a good trend for the band. It's not a good trend for the label. It's not a good trend for the producer. And so you tried to think about how to change that dynamic. And that was, you know, part of the, the sort of the poppiness of Diver Down, I think was, that was built into that to make sure that that trend could be reversed. And I think, you know, having that single, you want to try to maximize, okay, now we're putting the single on the album. Now there's another reason, you know, oh, I, you know, I always wanted to hear that song Pretty Woman. I never bought the single. Now I'm going to buy the album or I own the single. I'm going to buy the album too. It sort of, you, it lets you continue to live off that song for that year, keep it going. So of course, of course you put it on the, on the record. Yeah. 
Uh, Steven, there's no way a video today with two midgets kind of fondling a woman. Greg wouldn't even let his kids watch that video. <laughs> Steven, you think they were good to ban that video or what? First of all, Greg wanted to star in that video. <laughs> he sent me an email. But <laughs> so, so think about this. This record came out in 82. They did this long movie type thing treatment for Pretty Woman. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that sort of the precursor to videos like Thriller and Black and White and some of these so-called video slash movies? Because that came out before Thriller. So could that have been the beginning of that? To tell you the truth, I don't know a lot about and I should know more about the kind of the landscape of MTV in 1981 and what was, you know, 1982, what was sort of being banded about. But I can only tell you that Ted said Dave and Alex were obsessed with making this video. He used the word obsessed. Yeah. Now, again, whatever that means, they were really into, they really wanted to make this video and they wanted to make it something unique that they thought was going to basically stand out. It's funny. There's some pictures in the book as well, in the Templeman book that Don Landy took, which are kind of cool, which are kind of behind the scenes pictures. There's one where you can actually see the, the protagonist, I don't know, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the guys who's like, he's standing in the room and you can actually see Dave and Alex kind of looking there as they're setting up the shot, which is kind of cool the kind of behind the scenes perspective. But yeah, they went out in one of those Western ranches that they use for movie making out, you know, near Holly, you know, near the mountains of, around Los Angeles and shot it in a freezing cold. Don said it was like, you know, it was the winter and it was like super cold up there in the mountains at night. And here we have it. Yeah. I, you know, I always thought that the banning was a uh, kind of a myth, but I actually did find a, a contemporaneous reference to that in Billboard or something from like 1980, early 82, where the MTV has pulled the video because of objections. And I, cause I it's one of those things that like you, later years, you were always like, oh, yeah, well, they didn't actually ban that video, but I guess they did. I mean, I guess that was just over the top. And I don't know. It was just, you know, of course, it's laughable. Huh? But transvestites weren't an everyday thing back then like they are now. <laughs> well, you know what? Michael Anthony dressed as a samurai too wasn't exactly uh, yeah. your everyday occurrence either. And Ed is a cowboy. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah. But overall, the song is just, I think they did their spin on it. It's just never been a favorite song of mine. terms of the covers that's prop that's my least favorite cover on the record i never asked ted about like what would you have chosen instead he probably would you know who knows what he would have said at the time or he could have probably said songs but you know if he you know his basic point was that he wanted to do like a motown-esque 60s pop hit 
I could have thought of 10 other songs that I would have thought were better suited for them to do. But yeah, that's that's the one they uh, they went with. And uh, and it got them a hit. Yeah, it did. It did really well at radio and uh, was a uh, was their biggest, you know, their biggest hit since Dance the Night Away, I think. I mean, I think almost 100% positive since Dance the Night Away for sure. So, wow. So talking Motown, next track, Marvin Gaye's Dancing in the Street. And uh, it's interesting. I was reading something that said uh, Eddie came up with a riff, wanted to give it to Peter Gabriel. Templeman convinced him instead to hand it off to Roth. And Eddie has not forgiven either one of them since. I don't know if that's true or not. I I never heard that. I'm not, look, I always say like, there's, you know, you don't know unless Ed was around here to confirm that or, you know, Ted never said anything like that to me about, about that. I mean, he went into great detail. He was very impassioned about talking about this song, but the story he told me was that we were trying to finish the record and Ed had this thing, this keyboard thing. And we laid it down the, you know, kind of the backing track, the synthesizer backing track that's there. And he said, I gave it to, you know, we gave it to Dave and said, obviously, write the lyrics, write a melody, write lyrics. It's your job. And Dave couldn't come up with anything. And so Ted was puzzling over this thing. And he came up with the idea. He says, he said, you know, this was the only cover that I ever suggested to them. You really got me. They brought in. You're no good was something that Dave suggested to Ted in the studio. Ted loved the idea, but it was like Dave was the one who said, what about you're no good? And so, you know, Ted really talked to him. Ice Cream Man was something they were doing in the clubs. Kind of can kind of go through the, the covers that they did. And, you know, Ted was really wanted to be clear that this was the one was his idea. He said, I know what we can do. If we take this track that you've created, this keyboard part, and then we overlay the base of the chords for Dancing in the Street, we can make this work. Because he said Dave had nothing. And he wasn't saying that to criticize Dave. He's just like, sometimes you're just like, that's something you would just put on the shelf and say, okay, we'll get it next record. But he said, we needed a song. And he's also said, when I realized Dancing in the Street could work, I thought, great, another single. Mm -hmm. We need another single, right? And this is another pop song we can use. And so that's how Dancing in the Street came about. Ted's perspective, that Ed didn't complain at the time. Ed never approached him and said, I don't want to do it this way. I want to use this for original song. Of course, Ted was well aware that later on that Ed made clear that he didn't want it to become a cover. He wanted to use it for his own, uh, for an original song and was actually pissed off either at the time or soon after, whenever that happened, he over, you know, over years, it kind of came out that he was not happy with what happened with dancing in the streets. But Ted says, I think he got pretty great. He's like, based on, based on where we were, which is we had this thing. He said, you know, and, and Ted's perspective is like, you know, he's like, I want to get Ed's music out. He's like, you know, this guy is a genius. This band is unbelievable together. He's like, I want their music I want Ed's creativity to show through on the record. And he said, this was, a, this was a cool thing he came up with. And he's like, if we hadn't come, hadn't done this, he's like, there's nothing to say. It never would have ended up on any Van Halen record. He's like, I heard pieces of music over the years that obviously never, you know, that never got used on one of his records, you know, and maybe never got used at all. He's like, you know, sometimes you just have something. You're like, that's cool. But if you don't have lyrics, you don't have a melody, you don't have a song. He, t- he talked about that all the time. He said, you know, it's not a song. Oh, that's a cool idea. But it's you can't put a riff and like basically a beat on a rock record, you need lyrics and a melody. You can put instrumentals on, but you can't just like go like, oh, it's a three minute. You know, there's like these parts that just repeat for three minutes with no lyrics and a melody. And so, you know, Ted's perspective was, I wish Dave had come up with something. I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't want to do a cover. He said, we hadn't, you know, we needed a song. The album's only 29 minutes long. We needed something to put on the record. And this let me, basically, this let me get Ed's creative genius, this keyboard part, which I thought was so cool on the record, rather than just doing a cookie cutter cover of like another like riff rock song where you're copying the riff of another artist, you know, you have this incredibly cool keyboard part, which as Ted said, maybe would have got thrown in a box. No one ever would have heard it 
He wishes it had been different. He wished David had time. And he said, we just didn't have any more time. And it was like, this was just my eureka moment. Like, this will work. And he was excited. And I love the song, personally. I love the solo. I love the disco bass line, the harmonies. I mean, I think it's great. And actually, I, I played it for Ted. And he was like, oh, that's the one that Ed's pissed off about. I said, well, yeah, I mean, whatever. You know, whatever. I, don't, I don't know how I'm like, I don't know. He's like storming around the house mad, but whatever. He's like, he's expressed. He knew. He was like, I fucking love this. He's like, I can't believe he doesn't love this. But of course, he understands why. But he's like, I think it came out great under the circumstances. You know, Ted's perspective would, it came out great. He loved it. And not every, again, a lot of people hate it. I get it. You know, whatever. It's it's not unchained. I get it. You know, it's not in talking about love, but as a pop, pop summer song that they could get on the radio. That's why Ted felt like his whole point was, this is part of how good the band was. We were able to basically put this puzzle together and go, yeah, we'll do this as a cover, but we'll get his keyboard song on it. We'll get the harmonies on it. You know, Mike's bass line. They sang it great. Ed came up with that kind of cool Jimmy Page-esque solo. And so Ted was extremely impassioned about this. You know, again, not to say like he's always right. He wasn't trying to say like, he always told me I hated when I thought Ed was disappointed or we didn't, you know, when there was a sound I wanted to, he wanted to get and we couldn't get it or something I wasn't communicating. He's like, I hated that. I didn't want to fight with Ed. He was my friend. He felt badly that Ed would have felt disappointed in the long run with how that song came out. But for him, he thought he thought it came out great. Yeah. Uh, Steven, I had heard Jagger Bowie version before oh, yeah. i heard the van halen version <laughs> oh yeah Dude, this van halen version's 10 times better oh, no doubt no doubt so i'll say this uh, the sign of a really good song i'll be honest i love the van halen version i love the martha and the vandellas version recently the struts covered it and they kind of did like almost a van halen ripoff of of this <laughs> spoiler song. alert they did yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah, the Bowie Jagger thing is a little goofy, especially if you watch the video. But I just, I love the song. I think it's a great song. And yeah, Van Halen does a fantastic job with it. I love the cool keyboard thingy going on at the beginning. It makes it definitely a Van Halen original of a cover. So uh, I dig it.
So we can talk about the next two tracks together, the Little Guitars intro and Little Guitars as a song. You know, to me, the other song had a Yankee Rose vibe. This one has a going crazy vibe, right? Like later on, you hear this and growing crazy. It's got that little Spanish feel. I don't know if this story is about to be supposed to be about Mexico. I think David just wanted to say the word Senorita somehow. But uh, Greg, what do you think? (laughs) You know, I absolutely love the guitar intro Templeman told me that, you know, Ed used to get nervous in the studio, which like blew my mind. I was like, what? what? He's like, oh, yeah, he would do stuff like this. He'd get nervous. I'd leave sometimes just because as the producer, you're sort of the authority figure. You go, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. And I say to Don, he'd be like, get this on tape. I'll be back. It just kind of reminding me of that, like the absolute technical genius of Eddie Van Halen. And then imagining, you know, for him, it was like you feel like you put on the spot and I do that, that stuff. Because I know that, you know, he has talked about how the technique. He had to kind of figure out how to do it with the, with the you know the one hand trilling on the e string, high e string and then playing the um, the bass strings with his other hand and so you know and then to go into the uh, into little guitars with the with the tiny guitar and then Mike actually played a tiny bass on the record too which I don't think he ever played he may have played at us festival but I don't think he played it on tour ever afterwards I don't think to me it's again another another texture there another it is another pop song but a super super catchy riff and one of those ones where you really can appreciate the inter- interaction between Alex and. Alex and his brother really just that was the genius of the brothers that they would come up with these types of parts together I'm a big fan of this of this song and I'm, I'm glad I got to see it live on the 1984 tour it's kind of cool I have a very vivid memory of the end of that song they played that song and then when Eddie hit the last bit with the finger picking on the chords the lights went out it got dark and I remember that very vividly inside the arena that kind of like everyone cheered you know it was like this kind of unexpected thing the whole arena goes completely pitch black it was cool
Alex does have a cool groove in this song. There's no doubt about that, Stephen. What do you think about this song? The third original on the record, and I absolutely love it. Three for three, in my opinion. This song is so damn catchy. It's a pop rock, awesome, just killer tune. I just, I dig this tune. I have a lot of love for this tune. This song just makes me feel good when I hear it. Some of the rhythmic stuff that Eddie is doing with the chords is unbelievable. Nobody can seem to duplicate it. No matter how many times I hear somebody try to cover this song or tribute this song, they can't get the rhythmic patterns down that Eddie that's does. That's really true. That's a great point. That's a really, really good point. I mean, you hear people do covers of like Eruption and things that they kind of like really like, yeah, that's pretty close or whatever. That's pretty, that's, you know, but yeah, you're right. This is one of these songs that's really, really difficult to do right. People typically just doesn't even get in the ballpark, you know, where it even sounds like it. I'm always actually more of a fan where people don't actually try to imitate it, where they just try to cover it and do something, you know, basically a, a different arrangement rather than, because like you said, it just doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it's great to hear Ed do it his way. So the next track, Big Bad Bill, is Sweet William Now. Okay, I get it. The song's a little cartoony. Okay, I got it, you know, cleared out solo, blah, blah, blah. I love the feel of these type of songs. Like, I don't know who Milton Ager or Jack Yellen is from 1924, but I'm telling you, if they would have heard this version, they would have loved it. There's nothing, only Van Halen can pull this kind of stuff off. Thank you. Greg, you you like this song? Thank you. That's Thank you for making my point, right? Exactly right. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what I love about this record is that it's not predictable in its song choices. It's not predictable in terms of performances. I think I always think it must be a really special thing for the Van Halen family to look back and realize that their dad, the two sons played together on a record. I'm really glad that happened. You know, Ted, remember they came into the studio and Jan, their father had lost a finger. He had lost a finger in a, a trail. I believe in an accident that happened on a trailer where he was basically trying to move a trailer and the trailer came down on a hitch and, you know, tore off the part of his finger. So he, you know, it was a little challenging for him to play. But they really, you know, come on, Dad, come on, and play, because he hadn't, you know, he had basically, um, I don't think he had been playing as much in his later years, and so uh, to have that, the clarinet solo, along with, you know, again, the the song choice, the basically the, you know, the the guy gets married, which is kind of, again, I always think it's interesting because that's, of course, right around the time that Ed had gotten married, and you know, Ted never said anything about like, oh, this is why we did it or whatever, but you know, that's always just my own. I actually even never said that to Ted, but the whole supposition of that is interesting to think about whether it was like, you know, basically kind of like a little nudge to Ed or something like that. You know, it's it's interesting to think about that in terms of the fans. The politics because of the the whole thing that went on they will you know ed shouldn't get married we need to be four single guys like we're in a gang or something like that you know and uh it's just a great song choice and uh you know sequenced templeman would sequence the records over and over and over again i've talked about this a couple times on twitter and i probably mentioned it in the book they told me was that on diver down and fair warning i think those are the only two records if you look at the song listing on the original first pressing of the vinyl you'll know it because the song listing on the album jacket doesn't match the song listing that's on the album because Ted would change the sequencing so many times. He would change it after the art was done. Like basically like, what's the song sequence, Templeman? And he'd be like, this is it, I'm sure. And then like 24 hours later, he'd be like, actually, I'm going to change it. And they would they would change it and Don would do a new test pressing and then eventually it would come out. And so if you look on the back of Fair Warning and Diver Down, I think it's for sure in Diver Down too, you can look and you can actually see like this was at one moment in time, he sequenced all the records, his proposed sequence for the record that you know didn't end up being the finalized one but yeah i think the see i think the sequencing he came up with was great to kind of end the record this way the way he ended it with the big bad bill leading into the last song was was really that was exactly right
stuff, he could shut his stuff. Had the whole town scared to death when he walked by, they all held their breath. He's a fighting man, sure enough. And then Bill got himself a wife, now he leads a different life. Big Bad Bill is sweet with him now. Mary life done changed him somehow. Now they all call him Sweet Papa Willie Dear. Stronger than Samson, I declare. Till the brown skinned woman's bobbed his hair. Big Bad Bill don't fight anymore. No, no, no. He's doing the dishes and mopping up that floor. Yes, he is. Barely used to go out drinking, looking for a fight. Now I gotta see that sweet woman every night. Big Bad Bill is sweet William now. Steven, I know you're a riff guy. These cartoony songs, you like these? So this is the genius of Van Halen. Van Halen has made it clear that they're a fun band, and there's a little bit of comedy in every one of their records. And this is just another one of those songs. But to Greg's point, and to your point, really, listen to this song. Listen to these jazz chords. Listen to Alex playing the snare with the brushes. Listen to... Mm -hmm. Van Halen's dad playing the clarinet. This song is played beautifully. Anybody that listens to this song back in 1924 would have thought it fit right in. I mean, it just, obviously it's a more modern recording of it because anything that sounds like that was probably recorded with a freaking whatever they used back then in 1924 to record uh, somebody, you know, taking a stone and chipping out the the tune on a rock or something. I don't know, but it's just, it's a classic. It sounds great. Yes, it's not balls to the wall, Van Halen, but it is fun. And if you listen to it with open ears, I don't see how you don't smile in listening to this song. Mm -hmm. So second to last song, The Full Bug, I got to be honest, there's too much going on in this song. I, I lost interest after a while because I don't really need the harmonica and Ed's doing a lot. I think if it was a little more simpler, I probably would have liked it a little bit better. Greg, I'm assuming you think opposite. I don't think the lyrics are particularly uh, clever that Roth came up with, but again, I can imagine it's just like a, you know, kind of a, a slapdash thing. I mean, it's, it's, he, it's the performance, the, the way he pulls off the vocal that makes the difference, but it's a classic Van Halen boogie and they, they did it so well. They did it on the first record. They did it on uh, Van Halen two with, bottoms up and then of course on hopper teacher and so this this is what i really like about it and the uh basically the all that intricacy with the with the stuff with alex where they, they do all those little um those kicks and those little uh, patterns right before he kicks into the uh harmonica solo which is kind of cool you know again roth is no like you know he's no uh virtuoso on the harmonica either but it, it's just about a vibe you know it was about it's, it sounds like roth just woke up after being like on a bender you know and smoked a, two packs of cigarettes and half a gallon of whiskey before he sang it. And that's part of the, that's part of the charm of the song for me. But the terms of like, particularly the even more anything else, the lyrics is just sort of part of a man going to bite your ass all stuff. I mean, it's just sort of like kind of like throwaway lines, but you know, again, in some ways it's like, you know, tutti frutti, right? It's, it's the performance that we think about. It's not about what tutti frutti means or what baba lubop. It's just the, the way the person little, little Richard sings it. So that's what for Dave, that's for me, what matters. 
Uh, Steven, the full bug for you. Tutti Fruity is a nice ice cream flavor, but Hollywood, all I got to say is I got a bad little woman going to buy your ass. That's all I got to say. <laughs> full bug is probably one of my top 10 favorite deep Van Halen tracks. I love, 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 love this song and always have. This song kicks ass. I love the slow kind of fiddling around at the beginning. I love when it just kicks in. I love the Dave Yelp at the beginning. I love the background vocals. I like this song. It kicks ass. I got nothing bad to say about it. It's a great way for me to sort of end the record in terms of music. I know we still got one more to go, but uh, in terms of just flat out, you know, rock and roll, that's a great uh, rock and roll note to end on. And then the last track, Happy Trails. I absolutely love this song. There is something so fun about this song. Mm -hmm. I've never heard Roy Rogers do it, and I really don't care because this is the only way I want to hear this song. Mm -hmm. Greg, when you first heard it, were you like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I mean, I remember it from, like, my grandfather, like, you know, singing it or something like that. Like, he was, you know, like, cowboy music from the 50s or whatever when I was a little kid. And so, yeah, it's sort of a weird – it's like a weird – we first hear you're like, what? What are they doing? And, but I always use this song to kind of crystallize whether however fake or real or genuine it was. You know, I really want to believe that, you know, those guys, for all the problems that the band had over the years – 
when they were in the room in the right mindset and the right spirit of things, it was a lot of fun. And those guys really did love each other in some sort of way. All those guys, even if they hated each other in some other ways. And this was to me that crystallizes that, like, what's a better vibe than listening to those guys sing that together, you know, with the laughing at the end and just the, just the, harm, uh, the harmonizing and the, the fun of it. You know, again, let's think about it. You have a hard rock band that's in the same magazines with Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. We're going to do a cover of Happy Trails. <laughs> Most people will be like, are you crazy? That's a terrible idea. And we're going to do it a cappella. Oh, by the way, two songs before it, we're going to do a 1920s big band <laughs> jazz song. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, but then again, that's what the thing about Van Halen is. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to they have the ability to take these things that are outside the box choices and make them their own and you were like i can appreciate this because this artistry is so good by this person and so that's to me i'll argue with anyone about diver down i mean you you know it's just again i'm not saying it's like the be all end all of perfect records or that it's necessarily like the greatest van halen record ever made but i always basically want to advocate for it because people are always like oh well it's all cover songs I'm like you're missing the whole point the fact that it has cover songs is exactly what <laughs> why it's great and i'm glad it exists it's like you could not not have fun listening to this record driving around in the summer i actually have a very vivid memory of a friend of mine who had a, I'll tell you, a gold ford escort mid-80s ford escort four-door you guys remember these cars yes like you got hit on you got t-boned in it you're dead right <laughs> it was like thin doors he had an alpine stereo when he's you know kids like the car the alpine stereo was worth more than the car I remember we got in the car, it was probably like 1985, he put the tape in, and where have all the good kinds done, came in, it was a great summer day, the wind's blowing, no, the air conditioning doesn't work, you're rolling the windows. It's just, you know, that's what the, that's what it was about Yeah. Um. for me. Yes. You know, a lot of records make me feel different ways, but to me, it just always puts me, it always puts me in a good mood, you know, it just always, it just makes me nostalgic, really, for, yeah, summertime and just being able to listen to a Van Halen record while you drive into, you know, some job or something like that, rather than having to worry about, like, oh, I'm going to die of COVID next week or something like that, you know, it's like, there's a little bit, you know. I know it's always easy to look back and go, it was better then, but it was a little bit of a more relaxed summer for me. And I summer of 85 or whatever that was, 84 or whatever summer that was, was something like that, driving around, you know, listening to Diver Down on my friend's car, you know, it's yeah. great. <laughs> Steven, you got to love Dave. Somebody asked him in an interview, so what did the record company think about Happy Trails? And his quote, joke them if they can't take a fuck. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> what do you think about this? Dude, Dave is awesome. You go into that rabbit hole. Good luck, dude. You will spend hours listening to Dave say stupid shit. That's classic Dave. Dave's awesome. They used to close the concerts uh, around this time period with this song. And mm -hmm. this song, they've been doing this song. This song was on the 77 demos as well as a yep. joke. Yep. Uh, right. And again, another one of those songs that the band brought, mm -hmm. you know, brought to Ted, basically. Mm -hmm. that they, they were doing this. And, uh, you know, obviously Ted thought, Ted heard them do it he thinks he heard them do it at the Starwood or they did it for him in the basement before they did the demo, but he, you know, he liked it. He liked the idea of doing it. So he wanted them to do it and demo it, you know, 
for the Warner Brothers demos to basically have an evaluation of the material. So he liked it. Right. All right. So top two, bottom two songs. Greg, if you were to pick top two songs and bottom two songs. Top two songs, I'm going to go Dancing in the Street, Happy Trails. And then bottom two songs, probably, I guess, I mean, I think it's all relative, but probably Intruder, Pretty Woman. Okay. I'm going to go with top two, Where Have All the Good Times Gone, and Secrets. Good, good choices. Mm-hmm. My bottom two, you guys aren't going to agree, but it's Cathedral and Hang em High. I don't need them. Man. Steven, how about you? I love Hang em High. You would. <laughs> <laughs> My top two is going to be Little Guitars and The Full Bug. Mm. And my bottom two is going to be Intruder and I guess Happy Trails. I don't know. I hate, oh. to, lo- I hate to lose music. I don't want to lose Pretty Woman, <laughs> but I guess Pretty Woman or uh, Intruder and Pretty Woman or Intruder and Happy Trails, I guess, would be the two. <laughs> All right. So before we get to final thoughts, we're always attaching it to Kiss. It's time for your Historic Moment on Growing Up Rock. Historic Moment this week, 1982, was a transitional year for Kiss. Ace is basically out of the picture. They haven't decided on a guitarist, so they try out a bunch while recording Creatures of the Night. Album doesn't do that well sales-wise. Has some great songs, though, and sonically it made Kiss sound bombastic again. So instead of playing the original Creatures of the Night, figured I'd play a cover for you. So here is Iced Earth with their version of Creatures of the Night.
Iced Earth, baby, yeah. Is that Rupert Owens singing on that one? I, I don't think so. It, musically, it sounds okay, but I just, I miss Paul's vocals on the you song. You always say that. You say that about Paul every single cover. It is what it is. And I also don't like the one breakdown section in Creatures of the Night that dan dan dig 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 dank 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 That breakdown I like much better with the kiss version. <laughs> All right, so final thoughts. I'll give you my final thoughts. You know, I did not know there were cover songs. I knew uh, Dancing in the Street and Pretty Woman were cover songs. They were the only two cover songs I knew about, and that's because I had heard them before I heard Diver Down. So I didn't even know that it was a Roy Orbison or a Marvin Gaye song, honestly, because I thought it was uh, Jagger and Bowie. Uh, like, how do I know, right? I'm a teenager. You don't know that stuff then. There's no internet. Now coming back and listening to these, I understand why they did what they did when they did it timing wise. Maybe it didn't feel great at the time, but in the end, it actually probably worked out the best it could. So overall, the album obviously is very listenable. It's Van Halen. I actually like the cover songs better than the originals, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So Greg, your thought. Yeah, I think. It's an album, as I mentioned, when I f we first started, that gets a lot of flack from people who just want to just dismiss it. That's sort of like, is it just what you read about on the internet that you're not supposed to like it or something like that? And uh, if you don't get Diver Down, you really don't understand the spirit of early Van Halen. I'm not saying that you don't like have to like love it, but if you can't go, oh, I kind of understand where this came from, or I understand why they would have chosen these songs and what the whole aesthetic of this album is if you don't even like can't even like wrestle with that i think you're missing you're missing the whole point it'd be like going you know i don't like the led zeppelin acoustic songs man i only like the ones that sound like immigrant song or something it's like they're missing the bigger picture here about zeppelin so yeah i always urge people to check it out and, and give it a chance and and uh you know not just toss it aside by uh, virtue of just what you read that you're not supposed to like it or that you know critics didn't like it or whatever yeah well steven four million sold so it didn't completely get tossed aside maybe nobody listens to it anymore who knows yeah i think uh greg nailed it a little bit earlier on when he talked about taking that drive in his uh friend's escort with the alpine stereo and the windows down this is just a fun 30 minute summer listen i mean it's a fun record you got to listen to this record top to bottom and just take it all in with the windows down on a beautiful summer day and that's what this record is. It's fun. Completely underrated, completely over-criticized for unfair reasons. Pound for pound, the four originals on this record are absolutely fantastic, in my personal opinion. So I love the four originals that are on this. And the cover tunes, Where Have All the Good Times Gone, awesome. Uh, Dancing the Streets, awesome. Big Bad Bill, fun, awesome. Just so much good material on this 30-minute listen. I love it and encourage people to go check it out. This also is a very important record for me because this was the first tour I saw. So I saw this tour in November of 1982 called the Hide Your Sheep Tour, and I pulled up the set list. This is the set list. Romeo's Delight, Unchained, Drum Solo, Full Bug, Running With The Devil, Jamie's Crying, Little Guitars, Where Have All the Good Times Gone, Bass Solo, Hang em High, Cathedral, Secrets, Everybody Wants Some, Dance the Night Away, Somebody Get Me a Doctor, Ice Cream Man, Intruder, Pretty Woman, Guitar Solo, Ain't Talking About Love, Bottoms Up, 
you really got me and uh, happy trails. That was the set list for that night. Wow. That's nine songs off this record. They always played a good bit of whatever record they were touring for. That was kind of their thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. So fantastic. Very cool. Thanks, Greg. Thanks so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. You obviously have a passion for this record. I do. I do. And uh, it was great to be able to uh, share my strong opinions about it. And I appreciate you guys bringing me on and letting me communicate with your audience. And yeah, thank you guys. Yeah. You know, you could have picked Van Halen 3. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel as passionate about Van Halen 3. You know? <laughs> I just don't. I mean, I, I got to bring you good content, right? I got, you know, you want you want the best of Greg. And so you wouldn't have gotten the best of Greg with Van Halen 3. <laughs> <laughs> so Van Halen Rising, that was your first book, right? Yeah, that was my first rock book. Yep. And then uh, Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. Yes, sir. Which is your latest book. We'll put all the links to all that stuff in the show notes so people can go find it where they need to find it. Do you have a website or is it best for them just to go to Amazon and get it? Yeah, I I mean, if someone wants to sign a copy of the book, yeah, I can personalize copies and I can do that through my Twitter. If you go to my Twitter page, it's at Greg Renoff, G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F. There's a link there. But otherwise, the book's available Amazon, you know, your local bookstore and the first place to people typically look is Amazon. It's, you know, the audio book is there as well. And you can check that out if people want to, you know, Kindle book or audio, audible book or the, the paperback. It's all there. Awesome. Yeah, I listened to it on Audible and uh, you can, I took it to times and three quarters, right? So 1.75 speed. Yep. And I got through it pretty fast and it wasn't chipmunk by any means. Yeah. And got all the content. I love the cool. audio book thing because you can cool. drive around and it's like sure. listen mm-hmm. to a podcast. Yep. It's, yeah. It's, it's awesome how people get it however they want it. So, yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. Greg, do you have anything to add before we get up out of here? Looking forward to a summer with the windows down, no mask, no COVID. That's all I'm going to say. All I you got to do is drive uh, 200 miles. Go on like a long political rant or something like that. You'd be like, you'd be like, cut his mic, cut his mic. We're going to get banned from, from, from StreamYard. Loud diver down. You know, rock podcast banned from StreamYard after guest goes insane about COVID. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's just, I'm, I'm, uh, appreciate you guys having me on. It's great to talk and, you know, I certainly miss being out and seeing shows and hanging out with people. So this has been fun. Appreciate you guys very much. Sonny, you have anything to add before we get out of here? No, thanks, Greg, for joining, and I'm sure we'll we'll see you soon. Yes, please. That's it. Van Halen 5, otherwise known as Diver Down in the Books. We'll talk to you guys next week. Cheers. You guys have a great night. Thank you. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.